You can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. About a year and a half ago when I was preaching, I did something a little bit unusual. I had to preach from a chair. Some of you may remember that. We had a living room chair and an ottoman set up here. And here's the reason. Easter, a year and a half ago, I was taking my shoes off in my closet and a vase that was up high, a glass vase, cracked and about half of it fell and hit my foot. And at first I thought, well, I bruised my foot. I mean, it it hurt pretty bad. But after about five seconds, the pain really set in. And I looked down and I saw blood. And I realized, no, I'm, I'm cut. I need to get to the bathroom and put antibiotic and a bandage on it. And so I start hobbling to the bathroom. And by the time I get there, I look down and I realize, no, this is a little worse than I thought because there is blood gushing out of my foot. It was all over the floor. And I'm about to pass out because I get woozy at the sight of blood and the pain's crazy. So I have to sit down, call Julian. She gets me to the emergency room. Turns out it, it was worse than I expected. Took 14 stitches to put it back together. All right, finally, it's done. Wrong. Because a week later, I realize I can't move my big toe. Something's not working in there. We go in, turns out it had not just cut the skin, it had cut all the way to the bone and severed the tendon, and I had to have surgery and open it back up and stitch it together, and then six weeks of physical therapy. And that's why I was preaching from a chair, because sometimes in this life, things are so much worse than you realized. And that's what our passage is about this morning. So welcome to Grace Bible Church. (laughs) I'm glad you could join us. Paul is going to help us to see that for people in this world who are far from Jesus, the people we go to work with, people we live next to, people in our families, people we watched Aggie football with last night, if they don't know Jesus, life is so much worse than they realize. So we're going to look at the first few verses verses of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through three, if somebody ever asks you, I've got good news and bad news, which do you want first? What do you say? Bad news. Let's get it over with. So here we go. Verses one through three, the bad news. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The bad news is that the human race is dead in sin. This is the most painful passage you'll find in the book of Ephesians. It's one of the most awful passages you'll find anywhere in the Bible. If you know people who don't yet know Jesus, these three verses should break your heart. I can't read these three verses and not think about my friends who are far from Jesus, and think about what this says about them. These are guys that I see around town. We, we do hobbies together. We have fun together. I'll see them at the store or wherever, and I'll ask them, hey, how are you doing? And, and they'll say, as all guys do, well, I'm doing fine. I'm doing okay. And there's this voice in the back of my head that knows this passage, and it screams out, no, you're not. You are not fine. You are not okay if you don't know Jesus. No, you are dead in sin. And you don't even realize what that means. Dead in trespasses and sins, it means you're enslaved. You are a slave of sin. You cannot help but sin. 
It is what you always do. You have no power over it. And actually, in these first three verses, the first two and a half verses are all about slavery. Paul is telling us that our friends, our family members, our neighbors who are far from Jesus, they are slaves of of three things. Let's unpack this bad news. They are first, they're enslaved to the ways of this world, to, to the course of this world. They follow the culture that they live in. They do what this world does. He's talking about the, the cultural currents that surround all of us. For those who don't know Jesus, they are enslaved to those cultural currents. They do what culture does, and they don't even realize it. They're like fish who don't know they're wet. You ever thought about that? Does a fish know it's wet? No, it can't because it doesn't know the opposite. Wetness is life to the fish. So the culture is life to those who are far from Jesus. It enslaves them, it controls them, it moves them, and they don't even realize it. Second, they are enslaved to the ruler of this world. That is Satan. He is their father. That's a strange thing for us to hear. God created human life. Isn't he our father? Well, no, we're not born into the family of God. We're born in the family of Satan because we're sinners. So he deceives us. He, he leads the people of this world away from God and into deception and into depravity and into death. And that's true whether the people of this world believe in him or not. So many of your friends who are far from Jesus, they don't even think Satan's real. Said the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. But he does. And he has enslaved them whether they realize it or not. Third, they're enslaved to their own selfish desires. The lusts of the flesh and of the mind This is talking about our self-centered desires, our our commitment to satisfy our own cravings. That's what animates people who are far from Jesus. It's what motivates them and energizes them. They want to satisfy their own self-centered desires. Now, sometimes we hear that word lust and we think only of immoral things. Well, that is included, but but the person that's described by, by this idea of indulging the flesh and the mind, that could be a very moral person. That could be a very religious person. But they practice their morality and their religion to feed their ego. To make them feel better about themselves. And what Paul is saying is, it doesn't matter whether you're chasing self-satisfaction in sex and booze or in religion or morality. It's the same thing. You are a slave of your self-centered desires. And you don't even realize it. And, and the worst news of all is our slavery to sin and to this world and to Satan and to our self-centered desires means that we are children of wrath. This is the saddest line of all, one of the most heartbreaking lines anywhere in the entire Bible. It means that the people we know who are far from Jesus, they're under the wrath of God. It means that they deserve God's punishment in this life and in the next life in a place the Bible calls hell. And that's hard news it's hard to speak. It, it takes your breath away just thinking about that. And, and if you've grown up in Christianity and you've studied Jesus, then it's very natural to ask, how can a God of love and mercy and grace talk about wrath? How do I reconcile that? A God of infinite love, how can he pour out wrath on human beings? And, and I'll be honest, I don't have an easy answer to that question. 
I can't wrap my mind around that. God is too big for me. That question is too big for me. I don't understand how to put it together. But here's what I do know. I, I know it has something to do with the holiness of God. Holiness is, is God's separation from sin. It is the polar opposite of sin. And so holiness and sin cannot coexist. They are like oil and water. And so we're told in the book of Psalm, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. It's just a logical impossibility. And so when you think about eternity, you're going to have a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells. And so what can dwell with him? Only holy people. Sinful people cannot be there, so they go to the other place, which the Bible calls hell. So it has something to do with the, the holiness of God. He, he cannot be in the same place as wickedness. It also has something to do with the justice of God. God is righteous. He always does what is right. He cannot wink at sin. He cannot sweep evil under the rug and ignore it. He must punish it. That's what Abraham realizes in the book of Genesis. Abraham says, far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham is recognizing that, no, a judge cannot dismiss evil. We won't even let a human judge do that. A human judge who lets a a known criminal go free, we would be up in arms over that. No, the judge must uphold the law. If we expect that of human judges, how much more the divine judge? God must punish sin. He actually built that into the universe. You live in a righteous universe where sin must be punished. It's like the law of gravity. What goes up must come down. What sins must be punished. So somehow, because of the holiness and justice of God, he cannot wink at sin. He must hate it, and he must punish it. And the result is that people who are far from Jesus are under the wrath of God, and that is utterly tragic news. And so our friends and our family who don't know Jesus, they are not okay. They are not fine. Their reality is as bad as it could possibly be. They are slaves of sin and under the wrath of God. And what is a football game or a hurricane or a flood or anything else compared to that? That is everything. They are in desperate need of deliverance and they don't even realize it. Reminds me of of what my dad has told me about his testimony. He came to faith relatively late in life, around the time that I was born. He wasn't a Christian growing up um, because he was, he was actually an engineer, kind of like me. That's where I got it. And as an engineer, he felt like Christianity was just a crutch. Just a crutch for weak people who need it. But then life got hard for him. Life got tough, as it does. He had kids, and there's nothing like parenting to humble a person. He realized, man, I, I need help. I am inadequate. I, I am needy. And all of a sudden, he was looking for a crutch. And so, here's Christianity. And, and that is right. That is truth. When someone says to me, hey, Christianity is a crutch, I say, you know it is. That's great, and that's not a liability for someone who needs a crutch, like me. A crutch is useful to people who recognize that they are lame. Christianity is useful to those who realize, I can't do it on my own. We live in a world of desperately broken people. 
They need a religion that can lift them up. So Christianity as a crutch is good news. Let's actually be medically accurate, though. Christianity is less a crutch and more a defibrillator. Because we are not lame, we are dead. And without the hope of Christianity, we are never going to be okay. Now, that's a hard thing to talk about. It's a painful thing to talk about. Some of you may be wondering, why did I come to this church? This sounds awful. Why are they talking about this today? Here's the reason. Because your view of your Savior is based on your view of sin. The bigger your view of sin, the bigger your view of your Savior. In other words, your appreciation of Jesus is directly proportional to your appreciation of sin. If, if you don't think that sin is a big deal, if you really think that people in this world are, are okay overall, well, then Jesus is just an optional accessory. Hey, if you like him, great. If not, whatever. But if you recognize that the people of this world who are far from Jesus are utterly desperately in need, they are dead in sin and under the wrath of God, then all of a sudden Jesus becomes a huge thing. He becomes everything. And that reality, as we face the horrible news of sin and wrath, it compels us to share the good news. That's what this morning is about. Paul wants us to face the cold horror of verses 1 through 3 so that we will feel the compulsion to move people to verses 4 through 10. You've got to face the bad news so you'll be willing to share the good news. So that's where we go next. We have to leave the bad news behind and talk about the good news. What has our Savior done for us? Let's pick up that story in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The good news is that we are alive in Christ. When you read this passage, love how it starts. But God. I challenge you to find any better two words anywhere in the Bible. That's as good as it gets. For those of you who like hanging scripture on your wall, make a big plaque of that. But God. We were dead in sin and under the wrath of God, and God did not owe us anything. No, he gave us the world. He gave us life. He gave us his word. No, he'd already done so much good for us, and we said, no, thank you. I prefer my sin. So it was fully within his rights to be done with us. But God, he saved us, for by grace you have been saved. Saved, you hear that word, what does it mean? Anytime you see the word save or saved or salvation in your Bible, you always need to ask yourself, what is this person being saved from? Because in Greek, it just means delivered. So you're delivered from something. So you look at the context. What are they being delivered from? Well, verses 1 through 3. 
all the bad news of slavery to sin and wrath of God. You're being delivered from that. So in this passage, Paul is talking about salvation as we usually talk about it in church. Salvation from sin and wrath. And so that's what we're going to talk about now. I want to help you understand this blessed, amazing thing we call salvation that delivers us from all the bad news of verses 1 through 3. So the best way I know how to, to teach you about salvation is use this passage to answer five common questions. So I'm going to walk you through five questions about salvation. First, who saves us? Well, Paul's very clear, God. God saved us. And that's obvious to a lot of you, but it, it's important to unpack that for a second. What does that mean? Well, I didn't save myself. You didn't save yourself. It's not by works, not by merit. But here's the thing for Christians to realize. It's also not your faith that saved you. It's God who saved you, not your belief. There's nothing magical about faith. You believe in something, it's going to happen. It's not like pixie dust. No, what saves you is nothing in you, nothing about you, nothing you choose. It's God who saves, and that's crucial to get right because there's probably going to be some day in your life when you wake up and your faith is weak or maybe even non-existent. Maybe things got bad, maybe things got hard, maybe life has disappointed you. And if you believe that it's your faith that saved you, then all of a sudden you're left wondering, well, did I really believe? Did I have enough faith? Am I still saved? Is my lack of faith caught? No, no, no. It was never based on your faith to begin with. It is God who saves and he never has a bad day. Now that's really comforting to me. I've been honest with you guys. I struggle with doubt. It's part of my nature almost every day. I wrestle with very deep doubts. And so as I struggle with these doubts about my religion, about my faith, it is so comforting to remember that these doubts cannot cost me my eternal life because it is not my faith that got it for me. It is God who got it for me, and he is never weak. Okay, so it's God who saves. We've got to be clear about that. Second question, how does he save us? Well, the answer is in Christ. And Paul uses that prepositional phrase often in this passage. Those two words, in Christ, would give but God a run for their money. It's two best words in the Bible. Definitely the best prepositional phrase. So for you English nerds, put that up on your wall. In Christ, it's everything. And, and what in Christ means is that salvation, all of it, comes to you in and through Jesus. All of this salvation stuff, it's, it's all made possible through Jesus. That's the first idea here. Jesus made salvation possible. And, and Paul doesn't actually unpack that in this Passage. He doesn't go through the historical details of the story of how Jesus made it possible for a righteous God to save unrighteous people like us. But most of you know that story. It's a story about exchange. Jesus became human and he lived a perfect life that we could not. And then he went to the cross and he took all of our sin and sat in our place and took the wrath of God, the punishment of God for our sin. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death for us. And now he offers us his righteousness and his life in exchange for our sin. The good news of Jesus is that Jesus took all the bad you deserve and give you all the good he earned. He took the bad in exchange. He took 
and gave us his good in exchange for our bad. I like how Timothy Keller puts it. Jesus sat in our seat, the seat of wrath, so that we could sit in his seat, the seat of honor at the Father's right hand. That's the legal basis for your salvation. Because again, God is a just judge. He cannot wink at your sin. He cannot sweep it under the rug. He had to punish it. But the punishment falls on Jesus, not on you. That's the good news. That's how Jesus made salvation possible. So salvation, Jesus made it possible. And second, this in Christ, it also means that we get it with Christ in, in relationship to him. All of salvation comes because we are relationally connected to the Son of God. Okay, so you get eternal life because you are in relationship with Jesus. The easiest way to illustrate this, I've used this story a few times before. When I was in college here at AM, I did not have much money at all. But I got to go scuba diving a couple times down in Mexico. It was amazing. And the reason I got to go scuba diving is because I knew a guy. His name was Homer. He was a friend of mine in Dunhall, first year here at AM. And Homer and I got to know each other really well, and his family was very wealthy. And his family very graciously invited me to come with them. And so I got to do this thing, scuba diving, not because I was wealthy, but because I was with Homer. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's saying you get heaven not because of anything about you, your merit, your righteousness. It's not about that. It's about the fact that you're with Jesus. You're connected to him. That's how salvation happens for you, through your connection to Jesus. So... That's actually why Paul uses some interesting verbs. He makes up some words in verses 5 and 6. You are made alive with Christ. That's one word in Greek. He joins that with to the verb to say everything good about your life. That you are alive, that you are resurrected, that you will be in heaven. That is all with Christ. Okay, so how does he save us in Christ? Third, why? (laughs) Why would Jesus take our place? Jesus is the creator of all things. He gave us a world. He gave us life, gave us bodies. He gave us so many good things. We said no to him, and yet he was willing to give us more. He was willing to suffer and die for us. Why? Well, Paul uses a number of words to say the same thing. It's out of love. It's out of grace. So Paul uses words like love. That's a a choice to sacrifice yourself for the good of another. Grace, that means giving someone something good they don't deserve. Mercy, he uses that word. That's the flip side of grace. means not giving somebody something bad that they do deserve. Kindness, that's too soft in English. In Greek, it means you sacrifice yourself to give something good to someone. It's a beautiful word. All of these words are making the same point. That salvation is motivated by the grace and love of God, not by your merit. God did not save you because you're a pretty good guy. God did not give you eternal life because you're better than other people. It was all out of grace. It was all out of love and kindness. And the result is verse 9. We can't take any credit. We can't boast. We can't say that we had anything to do with it, not even an iota of it. No, salvation is completely a gift motivated simply by God's unconditional love. So, salvation is a gift. Let's make sure we understand what that means. Let me kind of bring this down to human terms, everyday terms. So when we say that salvation is motivated by love and grace, that it's a gift, what are we saying? Well, we're saying that salvation is not a reward. So what's a reward? You do something good, and I give you a prize. Well, then you worked for it. And Paul is clear. No, no, no works at all. Your works don't play any role. You don't get to boast. You get to boast in rewards. It's in a reward. So salvation is not a reward. It's, it's also not a discount. 
What's a discount? That's when you get something really valuable at a reduced price. Like these shoes I'm wearing today. Um, these are nice shoes. My wife bought these for me a couple years ago. She got them for $16. Because my wife is incredibly good at finding bargains. They typically cost maybe $80, maybe $100. She got them for 16 That's wonderful. I love that. But you realize that's not free. I still worked for these shoes. Now, I worked less hours than if they would have cost $100. But I still worked. And Paul is clear. No, that's not how salvation works. You don't work at all for it. It's not at a 90% discount because then you'd still have 10% to boast in. Your works play no role. So this is a good moment to answer a common question I get. What's the difference between Christianity and Mormonism? Well, a lot of things, but this is top of the list. So here's what you'll see if you read the Book of Mormon, Second Nephi. We labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. That's salvation by discount. You do everything you can. Maybe you can only earn 5%. Maybe I can earn 10%. And then God does the rest. That's not grace. That's not the Christian gospel. No, they're getting salvation at a discounted price. We say, no, salvation is free. Absolutely free gift. So it's not a reward. It's not a discount. It's also not a loan. Okay, so I hope none of you have fallen prey to this scheme. There's places where you can walk in. And buy a car, a new car, a nice car, for no money down and drive away. Was that car a free gift? No. (laughs) If you're not sure why, please come talk to me after the service. No, it's a trap. You've signed a document, you will be paying for that car. Most likely you'll pay much more than that car was actually worth. You'll pay on the back end, because it was a loan. But that's not salvation. Now, you, you don't work to pay back your salvation. You don't work to keep your salvation. You don't work to prove your salvation. That's important for people to understand. There's too many Christians who think that you're saved by grace alone, but then you have to do good works to prove that you're saved or keep your salvation. No, that would be alone. You are saved by grace alone, and there are no strings attached, or it's not a free gift. Salvation is simply grace. Motivated by the unconditional love of God. So, salvation is a gift, a free gift. What do we need to do to receive this free gift? That's the fourth question. What's required of us? Faith. Faith alone. Now, this is an important one. We're going to spend a few minutes here. I want to unpack this idea of faith because for a lot of people it's hard to understand. What is, what is faith? What does it mean to believe? So, let me define this for you. Faith, it is conviction. Or even persuasion, if you like that word. It's conviction or persuasion that something is true and therefore worthy of your trust. Faith is when you are persuaded that a proposition is true and therefore you can count on it. That's, that's biblical faith. So it's important to make some distinguishing uh, clarifications here. So faith is conviction that something is true. It's not just historical knowledge. And that's important to clarify, especially in a place like America. Where if you go ask the common person in America, you'll find that most of them actually know a lot about Jesus. They have a lot of historical data about him. They, they may know that he was a guy who lived around 2,000 years ago on the other side of the planet. And, and they killed him on a crucifix. And a lot of people think he rose from the dead. And maybe he did. But are they Christian? Well, here's how you find out. 
after they tell you what they know about Jesus, you ask them, if you were to die today and stand before God and he was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, if they tell you, because I'm, I'm a pretty nice guy. I tried my best. I'm, I'm better than most people. Then you know. No, that, you have historical information about Jesus. You don't have faith. Because faith trusts Faith says this is true for me. I will cling to that truth. They're still trusting in their works to get them in. That won't save you. Paul is clear about that in verse 9. You are only saved by that choice of faith to say, Jesus, yes, not only do I believe that the history is true, but I trust that your death and resurrection are in my place and I have eternal life because of you. So if there's never been that moment in your life, When you've moved beyond the historical story and said, that is true for me. I cling to Jesus. I hope this will be the moment. Just in case we're not clear. The right answer, if you stand before God and he asks, why should I let you into heaven? Is to point at Jesus. If you point at yourself, you lose. Point at Jesus because of him. All about him. He died and rose for me. That's why. Okay? So... Faith is not just historical knowledge. It's saying yes, trusting in Jesus. Now this is a a good moment for us to clarify the difference between our answer to this question and the official Roman Catholic answer. And I say official, I have to be really careful in how I communicate this. I'm not trying to box in or describe all Roman Catholics. I have a lot of Roman Catholics in my life. I love them all. I found that a lot of Roman Catholics actually hold a position of of salvation that's very similar to ours. I'm talking about the official dogma of the Roman Catholic Church as defined in the Council of Trent five centuries ago. When Protestants and Roman Catholics broke off, they codified their views, their beliefs, their theology, and they said explicitly that faith alone is not enough to be saved. You must follow it with good deeds or you will go to purgatory to pay off the rest of what is owed. And we say no to that. Again, a lot of of Roman Catholics don't hold to that view, but that's the official teaching of their church. We disagree because Paul says very clearly, By grace we are saved through faith, not by works. Not now, not in purgatory, never. Salvation is by faith alone. That is actually the cry that started the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. You may not know this, but 500 years ago, this October, will actually be the anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed his 95 complaints on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, that launched Protestantism. And chief on the list of complaints was this, that the Roman Catholic Church had lost sight of this blessed and beautiful truth that salvation is by faith alone, period. Sola fide, that is the cry of the Reformation. We're saved by faith alone. But what if you struggle with faith? What if you look at this whole Christianity thing and say, well, great, that's fine news, but I struggle to believe. Faith is still not easy. Well, first of all, I would say to you, I'm your brother. I totally understand. Faith is hard. It can be hard to believe. You can struggle with that. And you know what? That's okay, because now it's time to make an important second clarification. Faith is not certainty. I think there's a lot of people who think that God won't accept them unless they were sure. Unless they were positive. 
that Jesus was God's son who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And I'm here to tell you that is not faith. Faith is not proof. Faith is not certainty. You don't get proof or certainty until the next life. Until then, none of us are sure. We don't know. That's why it's called faith and not sight. So what does it mean to exercise biblical faith? Well, it means that even though you have doubts and uncertainties, you look at the evidence and you conclude that on balance, the evidence leads you to trust that Jesus really did die and rise for you. I like to think of biblical faith like getting on an airplane to go down to Easterwood, hop on an airplane. Do you know that airplane will get you safely to your destination? No, it could crash. Why do you get on it? Faith. You say, I looked at the evidence. Crash data is out there. It's relatively safe. This is a reasonable decision. Biblical faith isn't a blind leap. I looked at the evidence and it led me to say, you know what? I'm going to trust my life to this big metal thing because I think it's going to get me safe. That's biblical faith. I don't know that there was a Jesus or that he died for me or rose from the dead. But I look at the evidence and I conclude that it is more reasonable to believe that he did exist than that he didn't. So I'm going to trust my soul to him forever. So if, if you are in a place where you're struggling to believe, what should you do? Look at the evidence. This is an evidential faith. We don't make blind leaps around here. And we look at the evidence and we study it and it is compelling us, moving us to trust Jesus with our eternity. So I will share with you the evidence that led me to be a Christian. Again, I'm, I'm from an engineering background. I look at things very logically. I look at the historical evidence. So this is what has done it for me. Two most powerful things. First, I'd encourage you, look at the beauty and complexity of life. Look at this universe that we live in with all of its unbelievable beauty and and order and magnitude. And then look at life on this planet and and the beauty and the complexity and the variety and and the way that life is always adapting and and doing such amazing things. And then look at us. Look at human beings and, and how we care about things like love and relationships and, and good and evil. And ask yourself, is it more reasonable to believe that all of this came from simple, random chance? Or that it's the work of a creator? Look, look at that and, and just ask yourself, logically, which is more likely to believe? Here we are, human beings, and, and even though we struggle to love, we still want love. What made that? Even though we struggle to be good, we still want good. We know that there, there, there needs to be good. We want good for ourselves. We want good for other people. Where did that come from? Where, where did this idea come from in human beings that we reach for the transcendent, that we seek God? Where did that come from if this is all a product of random chance? To me, it is more reasonable to believe that there is a creator behind the scenes who has brought about a universe of beauty and complexity. That's the first thing. Look at that evidence. Second thing you look at is the resurrection. Because here's the deal. If a dead dude walked out of a tomb 2,000 years ago, then it's all true. Because no one else has done that. If he didn't, then none of this is true, and you and I are wasting our time. Ultimately, Christianity boils down to the resurrection. Did it happen or not? And I'm here to tell you, yes, it did. I believe it did. I believe it is more reasonable, historically, logically, to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead than that he did not. If you want to walk through that, let let me give it to you real quick. So just ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself, why did this one Messiah, out of a lot of Messiahs in first century Israel, 
launch a worldwide movement with billions of followers when all the rest died out. A lot of people don't realize that Jesus wasn't the only Messiah. There were a lot of dudes who claimed to be Messiah in first century Israel. It's like a way to be popular. I feel unpopular, don't like myself. Hey, I'm Messiah. Okay, got lots of followers. And so lots of people would come follow them until what happened? Well, they stirred up a lot of strife, and then the authorities put them to death, and then that was it. And no one remembers them. We have a few of their names, but we know there were lots more. History forgot them because they died, and that was the end of their story. So why was it different with this one? One Messiah out of lots of Messiahs, all of them forgotten, but this one launched a movement that took over the world. Where'd that come from? How do you explain it? Second question to ask yourself, if the apostles made all of this up, they invented this story, why did they include so many embarrassing things in it? If you're Peter and you get to tell the story for the first time, Peter is the voice behind the book of Mark, the first of our gospel. So Mark's writing it down as Peter's telling the story. If it's your story to tell, then um, why do you include that bit when Jesus is arrested and Peter gets scared of a little slave girl and denies Jesus three times and then breaks out weeping and runs away? You going to put that in there? You look like a coward. You look like a fool. And yet it's included, along with tons of other embarrassing stuff. Most embarrassing thing, you may not realize this, who were the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection? In every story, the witnesses were women. Women. Now, we look at that and think, how progressive. That's awesome. Well, it is progressive. It is awesome, but that's not really the point. The point is to recognize they lived in an incredibly chauvinistic society. And so if you were making up a story, you would never embarrass yourself by saying, yeah, the people who saw it were women. No, you would make it up as men. Of course you would. Why would they include embarrassing details like that unless they were true? Third question you ask yourself. If you're the Romans or the religious leaders in Israel... And Christianity starts catching fire. And the whole city's talking about it. And thousands of people are turning to Jesus. And you are losing power. And, and you are scared. Why would you not bring out the body? Isn't that like the easiest way to silence a rumor of resurrection? No, there it is. I mean, it was buried like right over there. Jerusalem's not big. Take out the body. It takes you like an hour to parade it through the streets. And we're done. But they never do. Why not? Well, some will say, well, because the disciples stole the body. Okay, all right, fourth question. If you stole the body and made this whole thing up, why would you die for that story? Because they all did. And they didn't die of old age or cancer. They chose to be tortured and imprisoned and executed because they believed it was true. So Paul, stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned, beheaded. Peter, crucified upside down john boiled in water boiled in oil why would you choose to endure that kind of suffering and death for a story you made up i look at all of those historically verifiable facts and conclude it is more reasonable to believe jesus rose from the dead than he didn't and that's what leads me to be a christian this isn't a blind leap thing This is looking at all the available evidence and saying, yes, I have doubts, I have uncertainties, but on the balance of the evidence, I say, yes, I think it's true. And so I will trust Jesus with my eternal soul. That's how faith operates. If you want to talk more about any of the evidence, come talk with me. There's nothing I enjoy more. Fifth question. To what end? To what end or purpose did God save you? That's actually what verse 10 is about. Look at verse 10 again. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We've been very clear that salvation is not based on works. Your works do not get you saved. They do not prove that you're saved. They do not keep you saved. So it might be easy to conclude, well, God must not care about good works then, right? Wrong. Verse 10. No, he cares deeply about good works. He actually saved you for the purpose of good works. And that's important to clarify. God didn't save you just so you get to go to heaven. Now, you do get to go to heaven, but it's so much more than that. God saved you so that you would become a fountain of good deeds in this world that he still loves. So we're told in the book of Titus, chapter 2, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So when you think about why did Jesus save me, it's not just go to heaven, it's to make me zealous for good deeds. Jesus saved you to transform you into the kind of person who is desperate to do good to this world. And the point of that is that God hasn't given up on this place. God is not done with the people of this earth. He still loves them and he desperately wants to do good to them and for them and your how. He wants to use you to unleash good deeds in this world. That's why he saved you. And so we do good deeds to satisfy the heart of God because he's desperate for good to be done in this world. So that's the end to which you were saved, to be a light for Jesus as you do good deeds on earth. And that leads us to our application. So what do we do with this? Well, the best deed of all, the most good deed you could do is to share this good news. That's the application. Share the good news. Now, I'll be honest, I was working on this sermon. I felt like a broken record. And I got to the application and I wrote this down. I thought to myself, well, Blake, I'm pretty sure that has been your application every week forever. I feel very repetitive. Will people still listen? And then I remembered that every other Saturday in the fall, we all gather in this really big place over there. And we all shout the same chants and sing the same songs. And we never seem to get tired of it. Why? Because that's who we are. We're Aggies. And so we say these things. We do these things. We sing these things because it's part of our identity. It's it's part of our mission in life. It's part of what defines us as a group. Well, so it is with the gospel. The gospel is our fight song. The gospel should always be on our lips. It is a thing we should always be saying because it is what identifies us. It is our identity as a people. It is what unites us. It is our mission in this place. So this will always be the application of every message. Share the good news. Why? Because verses 1 through 3, the people in your life who are far from Jesus, your neighbors, your classmates, your coworkers, your family, if they don't know Jesus, they are not okay. They're not doing fine. Life for them is as bad as it could possibly be, and it will only ever get worse. So you need to speak up. You need to share this good news. It is their only hope. And so you tell them about Jesus. And, And I would remind you of our goal for the fall. All of Grace Bible Church, Anderson, Southwood, Creekside. We believe that Jesus has led our elders to give us a directive for all of us. So it's authoritative for me and for you. This is Jesus speaking in your life. He wants each of us to initiate spiritual conversations with at least two people who are far from Christ. 
That's what God wants you to do this semester. He wants you to look for opportunities to initiate spiritual conversations, to begin to talk about meaningful things with people who are far from Jesus. And so just a few practical steps. Number one, write down their names. Maybe do it right now or in your phone or on your wall or by your refrigerator. Wherever you need to do it, write down two names. Two people in your life who are far from Jesus. And then begin to pray for them. And I'm going to encourage you. I'd like you to pray every day this week for those two people. Pray that God will do a couple things for them. The first is the hard one. Pray that God will break them. Pray that God will open their eyes to verses 1 through 3 to realize they're not okay. Pray that God would show them how desperately they need him. And then second, pray that God would open their eyes to see the good news. The good news that he loves them and died for them and rose for them. So pray for them to see the bad news and the good news. And then pray that God would use you to share this good news with them. And and finally, I'm going to encourage you this week, try to initiate one of those spiritual conversations. Just, Just one with someone who's far from Jesus. I've said it before, but the easiest way to get a meaningful conversation going is just be fascinated by the other person. Not fascinating. Plenty of people are trying that. Be fascinated with them. Get to know what they care about, what they love, what they are frustrated about, what they fear. Ask them questions. Draw that out. And as you ask them questions, it's very natural that you will get a chance to share. What what do you care about? What do you love? What do you value? What do you hope in? And you get to start to talk about things that really matter. Okay, so two names. Pray for them every day this week. One spiritual conversation before I see you next Sunday. Let's pray that God will help us do that. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you. You did not leave us slaves of sin under your wrath. That's what we deserve. That breaks us to hear that. But we need to be reminded that life was as bad as it could possibly be before we knew Jesus. We thank you that in your grace and love you did not leave us in our desperate condition, but instead... Lord Jesus, you took our place. You suffered for us. You took our punishment. You died our death, and then you rose from the dead to conquer our enemies. And now you offer the merits of your life and death and resurrection to us as a free gift. And we praise you for that. We thank you that because of you, Lord Jesus, we are alive. And we pray for anyone here this morning who is struggling with that news. Maybe that's new to them. Maybe they're wrestling, trying to believe. We pray, open their eyes, help them to see. It's not by works. It's not by merit. It's simply by trusting in Jesus that they can be saved. I pray for all of us who have trusted in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit and that the tragic, heart-wrenching news of verses 1 through 3 would not be quick to leave our minds. For a lot of us today, we're going to have lunch. We're going to hang out with friends. and We're going to watch football or work on homework, and it will be easy to forget that the people sitting next to us, people in the house down the street, people will see at work in the morning that if they don't know you, that life is as bad for them as it could possibly be. It's so much worse than they realize Break us with that truth. Help us to see that. And from that reality, compel us to speak truth to them. To show them the love of Christ. To do whatever it takes to initiate spiritual conversations with them and show them that there is good news. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would 
bring those names to our mind throughout this week to pray for them and to look for opportunities to share the good news with them. Thank you that Jesus brings good news. In his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.